Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I could not be more thrilled to welcome author Yah Jesse. Yah's debut novel, Homegoing, was a bestseller and a book that folks are still talking about and still loving. And now Yah is back with her second novel, Transcendent Kingdom, which we will talk about today, spoiler free. I do have a huge announcement. It's finally here. The Stacks has merch. That's right. We finally have apparel so you can rep your favorite bookish podcast out in the world. I do have to say a huge thank you to Jack Vanek because she helped me create the Stacks merch and it looks amazing. I'm obsessed with it and I know you will be too. So head to our website, thestackspodcast.com to check out our merch or just click the link in the show notes. For the month of November, I'm saying an extra special, humongous thank you to the Stacks Pack. Those are the people who support this show over on Patreon. Their monthly contributions make this show possible and earn them perks like our virtual book club. And now they get discounts to the Stacks merch. If you want to join the Stacks Pack, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks. I'd also like to say a thank you to the newest members of the Stacks Pack, Grace, Katie Trombitas, Sheila Davis, Hannah Doan-Williams, Becky Skinner, M.D., Derek Contreras, and Angie Solemn. Okay, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Yah Jesse. All right, everybody, I'm so excited. I am talking today with Yah Jesse. You know her. You're obsessed with her. We all are. How could you not be? Yah, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. We always start with the same question. Um, In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about the book Transcendent Kingdom? Sure. Um, So Transcendent Kingdom is a novel um, that follows a woman named Gifty who is getting her doctorate in neuroscience. Um, And she studies something called the neural circuitry of reward-seeking behavior, which basically just means that she studies things like addiction and depression. And it's at a time in her life when her own mother, who is suffering from depression, has come to stay with her. So she's taking care of her mother, she's working toward her final thesis, and she's also reflecting back on her childhood, particularly the years that led up to her beloved older brother's passing from a heroin overdose. So it's a novel about addiction and depression, about grief and how we deal with grief, about science, about faith, um, and about family. 
you basically just did my entire job for me. So <laughs> I feel like this interview is over. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I think one of the questions, one of the things that I thought a lot about when knowing what I know about how books get made and then reading your book is that it hits on so many of the biggest issues, kind of social issues um, of the last four years and of course of America in general, but specifically these last four years Mm. and leading up to, we're recording this before the election, but leading up to this election. And I'm kind of curious how, you know, a novel that talks about race and immigration and the opioid crisis and mental health and religion and science and all of those things, how that kind of manifests itself for you as a writer, knowing that you probably started this four plus years ago, that you've turned it in two years ago, that you've been waiting on edits. Like how does seeing the world kind of catch up to your work Mm. feel or what does that do or what is that like? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think with with both Transcendent Kingdom and Homegoing, I've really learned that you can't Um, you can't predict what kind of world your novel is going to come out into. Um, Homegoing was written over the course of seven years. And when I started writing it, Obama was president. When I was in the middle of of kind of getting near publishing it, uh, the election was happening. And by the time um, by the time I was in the throes of my tour, Trump was president. So uh, there's just like no, there's no real way I think to um, to predict the political climate that that a work is going to to come into. But I think one thing that um, that these books have made me really keenly aware of is the fact that um, nothing is new. Everything that I'm thinking about or interested in politically, ideologically, doesn't like it didn't appear out of nowhere, come out of nowhere. Um, So if I'm writing about something, even if it takes me like six years to finish a novel, those things are almost always still going to be relevant in some capacity by the time the the book comes out. Um, Racism is evergreen in this country. So that's, that's never going to um, not be relevant. Mental health is something that, that so many of us are dealing with um, on the day-to-day basis. That's never not going to be relevant. Um, so I think there there's a way of kind of drawing from what's happening in the headlines today um, that makes it like super hyper specific. Um, but but there's also just the fact that everything that we see, all of the headlines um, that we do see come from these seeds of other things that are always at work. Um, and therefore, uh, I feel like my job is just to kind of um, write whatever I'm interested in, write whatever I'm thinking about, and um, and hope that by the time the book comes out, people are um, are still wanting to talk about those things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because as I was reading your book, I was like, this feels so much right now. And then I was also thinking, all of this stuff is totally also old. Yeah. Like it felt very now and also like, this is old, this is old shit. Like I know this, you know, like kind of an interesting mix yeah. as a reader. Um, one of the other things as a reader and as a black woman that I was really curious about is that the story of Gifty and her mother and her family and her experience um, in Alabama, and especially with her brother and um, and the opioid crisis, it really felt – I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm minimalizing black people because that's not what I'm get, trying to do at all, but – it sort of felt like a quote unquote, like white story, mm. you know, like there's so much about what you're able to do and the permission that you've given yourself to s- tell this really small story that so often I feel like black people are forced to write about bigger things or things that are, you know, um, 
like representative of all black people. And yeah. this book felt like so small in a way that I was like, yes, yeah, fucking tell <laughs> this story and like make it just about this one person. Like don't make it about everybody else. And I'm curious especially in relationship to homegoing, which was a much bigger story that was much more inclusive of like the quote unquote black experience, yeah. sort of what that was for you, what that was like for you. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the kind of hyper specificity, the intimacy of this novel. Um, it's, it's something that I always want to get to in my work. Um, homegoing was incredibly sprawling and ambitious, um, but there were these moments where I tried to kind of cloak close in on a particular character's um, specific experience. But this this mm. new book, Transcendent Kingdom, I think does that to a greater extent. And I think you're right when Black people um, and people of color generally, when we write things, we're often meant to be representative of a larger experience. Um, and I wanted to push back against that. You know, my own life um, is so specific um, in that I can't think of a lot of other, you know, West Africans who end up in Alabama. Uh, I know a few because I lived there. Um, But that kind of story, that's not like a universal uh, West African immigrant story. Um, And why leave that out? If that's true to me, um, why not include that kind of a, that kind of a specificity? Um, So, so I wanted to give myself the permission um, with the understanding that as as much as you can get specific, um, that's when the kind of universal starts to speak um, louder. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, this is such a hypothetical. And I also want you to know that when I prepared for this interview, I was like, we're not going to talk about homegoing because everyone makes her talk about homegoing and I want to talk about this book. And now here I am. I'm going to ask you another question about homegoing. I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of annoying. We'll get to that question too. But I guess, do you think that this book, that Transcendent Kingdom could have been your first book? Or do you like, do you, would you have felt that you had the permission to tell this really super Mm. small story? Or do you think that like, because of the success you had, you were able to kind of be like, I'm going to tell the story that I that I want. Not that you didn't want to tell Homegoing, but you get what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I feel like the books just kind of arrive to me at the time that that they are ready to be written. It doesn't, it didn't feel like, um, it never felt like I wanted to write another book and ended up writing Homegoing um, first. Right. Um, Homegoing was, was so the experience of wanting to write that book was so visceral. Um, It really encompassed a certain number of years of my life, particularly like my, my teenage years, my early twenties, that it feels so specific to like a version of me um, that I don't think I could have written that book second. Um, I, I think that it was like, a book that was interested in all of these kind of larger identity questions that I was having as a woman who um, like was walking in this liminal space between uh, Ghanaian and American and trying to figure out where those, where those two things connected. And I, I had to go really large, really broad to find that connection. Um, But, um, but I, I can't imagine that book. um, I can't imagine writing that book later in my career. Hmm. Interesting. So in so in this book and also in your life, you know, we're talking about um, Ghanaian immigrants and that and that's your family story. That's your story. Um, and also in a place like Alabama that is, you know, like you said, there's not a lot of Ghanaian or West African immigrants in 
in Alabama. I'm curious about sort of the relationship between being black and being a black national or black, like the, mm. the dichotomy of those things, especially in a space like Alabama where it's so many, you know, black Americans. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in reading the book, some of the experiences that Gifty has and talks about, they felt like I felt like I could relate. Like I'm like, that's being black. That's being a black <laughs> woman. And then some of the stuff I was like, I have no idea about yeah. that. Like that doesn't feel like me. So I'm, I'm curious sort of, was that something that you wanted to play with? with your audience or was it just like that's just your experience or her experience yeah definitely um I'm like I'm a big believer in the idea that if you you know are looking for a book that you want to read and you can't find it you must write it um borrowing that from from Toni Morrison um and there are so many uh write uh, books by black women that I have read that I have loved and felt deeply connected to but that again like didn't speak to my personal understanding of blackness which again is so specific and so odd and weirdly like isolating um but I know too that I'm not alone in that kind of experience that there are so many diasporic black people who end up in these these small rural or suburban towns where they are isolated from community, um, whether it is other people of their nationality or other people of their race. Um, and I, and I felt like I wanted to see that story. The other thing too, is I, I felt like when I read a lot of books by other, um, other black immigrants, African immigrants, it's often people who have immigrated later in life, um, Mm. who've come to America, you know, in their teens or twenties, um, or even later. Um, and I love those books too, but that again, like feels like it doesn't quite capture my understanding of, of immigration. I came so young, um, that I didn't really have like a good grounding, a good, like foundational understanding of myself as Ghanaian. Um, and yet I knew that I was, um, and I didn't really have a, a family that was really deeply integrated with Black culture in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that experience of this kind of dual isolation of being something but not feeling like I was quite um, ingrained into the community of those things was something that I hadn't really read a lot about. Um, you know, sometimes people call call us the 1.5 generation, uh, people who immigrated so young that they can't really remember their home countries. Um, and, and I think that this book, The Transcendent Kingdom, is definitely like a 1.5 generation book. It's like people who are trying to kind of understand that isolation within the isolation. Yeah. I want to talk about something totally different, different part of your book, which is research. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've read, or maybe I heard you say, I can't remember somewhere that, um, the, a lot of the science from this book is, was inspired by one of your best friends who is a scientist who was doing this kind of research. Um, and so I'm curious what sort of stuff you researched, what sort of stuff was more conversations maybe with your friend Mm -hmm. and kind of how you did that. Um, and then maybe we could start here. A smaller question is, mm, how much do you love doing research? Because your other book feels like it also had a lot of research. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're like maybe a researchy writer. So I'm curious about that part of it too, just in general research. Yeah. It's funny because I never thought of myself as being like big into research. Even as I was writing Homegoing, um, I just felt kind of like I wasn't adequate to the task of how much research that book took, mostly because I never had to do such a research intensive 
project before. Um, and then, of course, I chose to do another research intensive <laughs> project for my second novel. But I found that I really enjoy it. I, I think that it feels um, it feels almost like this collaborative experience between the things that I am interested in and think about um, and these other writers, other thinkers who have written about, thought about um, these things from a different angle. Um, the research process for Homegoing was, um, was I often say it was kind of like um, wide but shallow, by which I mean, because I was covering so many years, um, I decided pretty early on that the only way to write this book and not have it take 20 years and be <laughs> 10,000 pages um, was to know just a little bit about a lot of different time periods. Um, so I mm. went into that just kind of trying to get um, just get the atmosphere of each each generation, each time. Um, and and so that process was was one that felt um, a little haphazard at first, but I think as I eased into it, it made for it made for a fun first draft. Um, with Transcendent Kingdom, I feel like the opposite was true. I didn't know very much about the science. Um, and you're right, my best friend is a scientist. Um, and she works in this particular this particular field. Um, and it kind of started with a trip to her lab, um, just out of curiosity. At that point, I didn't think I wanted to write about it. Um, but I found that trip so fascinating that I knew that I wanted to research more about what she did. Um, and the research process for this felt very um, narrow, but very deep. Like I wanted to know as much as I could about um, about neuroscience, but specifically this, this process called optogenetics. Um, and so it felt like, um, it felt like this process of just kind of learning something completely new from scratch and trying to get to a point where I could, if I needed to, um, like talk about it as cogently as though I myself were, um, were an expert in the field. Um, and I found that again, to be like a really pleasurable experience. It felt, I feel like after you graduate college, if you, if you go to college, um, there aren't really that many other instances in your life where you get to do these kind of deep dives into mm. a particular subject that you don't know much about. Um, right. And I, re I, I just, I really enjoyed that kind of like mind stretching work of research, um, of, of trying to kind of know something, think about something deeply, intimately that you don't spend most of your time um, thinking about and, and researching. Right. And did your friend read the book and give you feedback on the science sections or what was that kind of relationship? And was that sort of great that the two of you were in conversation in your totally different worlds, yeah. but sort of working together? I, that sounds kind of like a dream. It was, I don't know. It was really, really beautiful. I loved it. I hope she loved it too. Um, she did, she did read drafts of the novel um, and was like very generous with her time, like pointed me in the direction of um, essays or books that she thought I might find interesting. Um, I, I feel like it was kind of um, this conversation between things that I am already interested in things like faith, um, obviously immigration, kind of um, isolation and um, familial silences, familial secrets, and then things that, that she does and is interested in, uh, particularly the science, um, and trying to figure out ways to have those two elements come together, I found really um, really great. And I feel like it allowed me to see her from a new angle, which was also just a pleasure in our friendship. That's so great. And I really appreciate that in this book, the the person who was addicted to opioids was Black. 
because mm. I feel like so much of the rhetoric around the opioid addiction uh, crisis is so centered on like white Americans. Mm. And I just really appreciated that because black people are never allowed to be the victims of addiction in the way that white people are. And I just, yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was really um, great. Yeah. That's not a question. It's just a sentence. No. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was important to me. You know, I was like so many of us, I was reading all of the really beautiful, nuanced, sensitive reporting that was coming out around the opioid epidemic. Um, and as you said, like it was all centered on white, rural, suburban people. Um, and obviously they are the ones who are largely affected by this particular crisis. Um, but these crises aren't new. And there's been like a longstanding heroin epidemic in the black community, um, you know, you know, going back decades, um, mostly black right. people in cities um, that was not treated this way. And we all know that the crack epidemic was not treated this way. Right. Um, and, right. and this hypocrisy of, of us finally being willing to talk about addiction as a healthcare issue, to finally be willing to, to kind of interrogate the role of capitalism, the role of pharmaceutical companies um, in creating these problems, and finally being able to kind of veer away from the rhetoric of criminalization um, or the need to criminalize um, only when it comes to white people was something that I found infuriating. Um, so I, I wanted to to write this book and, and center a black person, a black person's experience with addiction. Um, I think so many of us have people in our lives who are suffering in these ways, or it's one of those like six degrees of separation thing. Like you always know somebody who knows somebody, um, right. and um, and our stories aren't aren't often told with the same kind of sensitivity and, um, and, and nuance. So I wanted to be able to, to do that. Yeah. I, that was just really great. And I really appreciated that as a reader and someone who I love nonfiction and I've read a, a lot of books about opioid addiction and oftentimes in, in the nonfiction books and the reporting that you're talking about, yes, it centers white, um, rural and suburban, people with addiction issues but it also introduces like a lot of black characters as like the dealer you mm. know in the city who's like supplying the drug and it's like yeah. okay were we really gonna do this like yeah. so I just really appreciated that and I think the same is true also for the depression and the mental health stuff on the other side because you know addiction obviously is a mental health thing as well but on the other side also talking about it in the, in the black community and I just I think that for me, that's what sticks out in this book as as being sort of unique in a way. Mm. Not that black people have addiction or mental health issues, but that someone's talking about it in this really beautiful, compassionate, loving way. I think mm. that, you know, as a reader, I could feel your love for your characters, mm. um, for Gifty's family. And I just I thought that was really nice. Were there any parts of this book that were particularly hard or easy to write? Mm. Um, the hardest thing by far was just trying to figure out the structure of this novel, mm. um, which was really just a craft thing. But coming off of a book like Homegoing that had such a clear structure, yes, it was really sprawling and it was covering a large amount of time, um, but it, it had these constraints that made it really easy for me to see um, because I wanted to cover roughly 250 years of history. Um, I was approaching it almost mathematically, like how many 
Um, how many years do I give each chapter? How many years do I give each each um, character? Uh, how how do I kind of break this down to get from 1750 Gold Coast to present day America? Um, and each of the chapters were so discreet uh, that if I change something in one, it didn't necessarily have a huge impact on the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that was my only novel, like I didn't really, I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about other ways to structure a novel, how to structure a more traditional um, novel, one that is, you know, a single point of view, um, not so many years covered. Um, And so Transcendent Kingdom was really challenging in that, in that regard. Like I knew that I didn't want it to be linear. It never felt like a a linear story to me. Um, But working within that non-linearity without the, um, without the like nice scaffolding of the structure that homegoing had afforded me um, was really, really challenging. It took me a long time to wrap my head around it. Um, what was easy? I think um, the I don't know. The easiest parts I think were were probably thinking about um, thinking about some of the kind of the faith aspects of the book. Um, I grew up similarly to Gifty uh, Pentecostal, and a lot of the things that um, that she's questioning and thinking about were things that I myself had questioned and, th- and thought about in my childhood. So I think that drawing from drawing from those memories made those aspects of the book really clear and easy for me. Yeah, and talking about the structure, did you? Do you, I don't write. So I always have these questions about actually writing that I'm just really curious about as just a reader. Mm. Do you write the book a few different ways or did you always start off with it being kind of going back and forth? Or is that something that you, like, you know how the story goes linearly and then you kind of say, oh, maybe this should come earlier. Like, how do you actually construct the structure in a Mm. book like Transcendent Kingdom? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think Um, each writer would have a different answer. Um, Mine is that I I wrote it, I wrote it non-linearly. So my first draft is, is pretty similar to the draft that you see in terms of um, moving back and forth in time. Like I knew um, from the outset that there was going to be this very kind of still present story, this still front story, which is gifty going into the office, going into the lab every few days um, and trying to take care of her mother. Um, And then I knew that uh, interspersed within that front story would be these flashbacks to her childhood where she's thinking about um, things that are kind of connected to the work that she's doing in the lab um, and to the, the care that she's taking um, of her mother. Um, So that was really clear to me. I think in the earlier drafts, it was a lot more kind of sporadic. There was less logic to the the back and forths. Um, and one of the things that I worked on with my editor is just giving uh, giving the flashbacks some more kind of direction, more thrust, kind of gathering them a little bit more so that um, so that you stayed within a particular time in Gifty's childhood a little longer um, mm. than you would have in in the first draft. Um, but it was that part of it was really trial and error. So um, I would I I it was nonlinear from the beginning, but um, with each subsequent draft, I would start to like move things around um, and see if it worked a little better, if it read a little clearer. Um, it felt like, I say this, it felt like to me, like a game of Jenga, um, where if I like pulled one thing out, the whole thing might collapse. So it was a little precarious to revise it this way, but, um, but I found it to be ultimately, like I found it to be really satisfying. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Do you, so I, this is my last question about home going mm-hmm. and its relationship to Transcendent King. Cause I am, I am very curious about this. How is it writing book two when book one was sort of just like this huge success? And like, what is that pressure like? Is it freeing or is it paralyzing? Like, <laughs> what happens? I mean, for people who haven't read Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom, what I will say is that they're so wildly different that if I didn't know that it was you who wrote them, I would be like, these are two books by two different people. And so <laughs> it also makes me really curious to see what book three will be because I often think of like, it's like a straight line between book one and book two. So where does like book three fall on which axis? You know, So I'm I'm curious about that. But what is that like? I'm writing this thing I've never written before. Oh my God, people love it. They love me. They think I'm a genius. Like this is the greatest <laughs> thing. And now I have to go round two. What happens? Like, what does that feel like? Yeah, it's really daunting. It was really intimidating. I often say that that writing a first novel is like writing in the dark, um, unsure of whether or not your work will ever see the light of day. And the Mm. fact that Homegoing saw light and that the light was so bright was like more than I could have ever anticipated. Right. Um, And and thinking about the second novel, like it could no longer ignore the fact that there would be light, that there are so many people who loved Homegoing and want to pick up the next thing that I I write. Um, And that brings like a different question into the writing process, which is the question of audience, which is something that I hadn't really had to think about um, too deeply for for homegoing because I had no real audience or had never interacted with an audience. Um, And so fears for Transcendent Kingdom um, about whether or not people would like it as much in the same way, if it was so different um, that, that people would kind of get hung up on that and feel kind of betrayed by it, like things that I hadn't really considered or had to consider with the first book suddenly crept in. But I think one thing that helped me was A, that I have really great people in my life who um, are very generous with me and um, and were very clear that there was like no wrong way to do a second novel, that there was like no amount of time that I could take that would be too long. Like people were just like very do what you want at your pace. Um, so that was great. Um, And then the other thing was just because the book is so different, because Transcendent Kingdom is so different from Homegoing, um, it made it easier for me to kind of set that first book aside and not compare them for myself. Like this book required so many new things from me, so many different ways of thinking about craft, of thinking about narrative and how to kind of structure a book, how to tell a story from first person point of view, um, how to think about introspection, um, think about interiority, like the the concerns of this book were so different from a craft perspective um, that it ultimately was really freeing because it felt like, you know, one book was an apple and the other book was an orange and I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to make them the same, the same exact fruit. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, they definitely feel so different that it is hard to sort of compare them at all as a reader also. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. Um, So I want to shift a little bit into kind of your writing process. We kind of started going in that direction. But how long did it take you to write Transcendent Kingdom? Mm. Um, Transcendent Kingdom took me, I think the first draft took me about a year and a half. And then from, um, from beginning to publication was about three years. Wow. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's like half as long as the whole arc of home going took you. Yeah. But I guess that's what happens with second and third and fourth books, right? Like you don't have your whole life leading up to it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Though, I, you know, there are some people who take one of my favorite writers is Edward P. Jones. He takes like about a decade between books. So you never know how long one is going to take. Right. And I've also heard of some authors, they have a book that maybe they know that they're writing, but they write other things in between. Yeah. Like, so yeah. something could take a really long time. Um, anyways, this is, this is important to me. How do you write? So where are you? Are you always in the same place? Is there a time of day? Is there music in the background? Are you, you know, are there snacks and beverages? Very <laughs> important to me. Are there candles? Are there rituals? Like what is your writing sort of vibe? Are you structured in that? Or are you one of those people who can write anywhere, anyhow? Yeah. 
I'm the latter, which I think is often kind of boring. Like I don't have, I don't have very much ritual around writing. I can write almost anywhere, particularly with the first draft. Um, I can write almost anywhere. Um, I don't need it to be perfectly quiet. Um, with homegoing, I was in grad school for much of it. So I was living in Iowa City. Um, and I wrote just at a desk at my apartment or I wrote at uh, at this bookstore that had a really nice coffee shop called Prairie Lights. Um, Transcendent Kingdom was a little I was a little more mobile. It was the first time that I did writing fellowships, which I loved and probably mm-hmm. um, like spoiled me for um, for writing process because it was like the kind of environment where they had thought of everything that the artist might need in order to do their work. So I did one called U-Cross, which is in Wyoming, um, in U-Cross, Wyoming, which has a population of 25. Um, and oh. all of the fellows had their little cabins and um, you had lunch brought to your door and it was just very idyllic. Um, so I wrote part of it there. And then I wrote part of it in Berlin um, at another fellowship called the American Academy in Berlin. Um, and that was also similar vibe, like um, just being very kind of pampered and taken care of so that you can do the work that you that you want to do. And Berlin was the first time that I had a separate office space that I wasn't like writing um, in, in my house or like with somebody else in the other room. Um, and that I think probably spoiled me because it was so nice to just like wake up, get dressed, uh, walk to your office, feel like you're, I don't know, made me feel like, you know, like I had a real job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you conveniently did not talk about snacks and beverages. So I need to know <laughs> if there are any, this is oh. like everybody who listens to the show knows that that's pretty much the whole reason I do these interviews is just to get to what are you eating and or drinking, if anything. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Um, I've recently taken up coffee, so I, I get a latte sometimes, um, but usually nothing. Like I, I start in the morning. Um, I don't eat breakfast, so I just kind of get started. Um, I try to have some water nearby, maybe coffee if I'm drinking it that day. Um, and one of my motivations is like getting to lunch. So I just try to write until lunchtime and then I break for lunch. Um, and lunch can be anything, but I don't have a lot of like ritual around food and, and drink. Okay. That's fair. I'll yeah. allow it. I too, <laughs> am a breakfast, I'm a breakfast skipper for oh, sure. Yeah. I like hate breakfast. I don't, I'm not into any of the breakfast foods either. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just, I don't I'm eat never, eggs. I'm just. Yeah. Eggs are not, I just really don't like eggs. So <laughs> me too. that's oh limiting. God, I feel like we're kindred spirits right now. No, every time I say I don't like eggs, people are like, what do you mean you don't like eggs? Yeah. Like, I don't. Unless they're baked into a cookie or a cake. Right. And I like team no eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Same. I'm with do you. you. Rem- um, do you remember what sort of stuff you were reading, watching, listening to while you were writing Transcendent Kingdom? Mm, I was listening to a lot of um, SZA <laughs> Control. Okay. Um, I think I great. had that that album on repeat <laughs> for probably longer than than my partner would have liked. Um, I was watching, well, maybe at the beginning of the process, I was watching Chewing Gum, the Michaela Cole comedy, um, which is actually really, it was, I mean, it's a beautiful show. She's an amazing, amazing, like, writer and actor and thinker. And, um, and that, that was really interesting on, like, religion, um, religion and blackness, religion and, and, um, and just, like, immigration like I found that show to be really really 
really good and fascinating. Um, so I was watching that. Um, what else? As far as reading, I was doing, I was reading like a lot of what I would call like science creative nonfiction. Um, okay. So books like On Immunity by Eula Biss or The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha mm. Mukherjee. Yes. Which I loved um, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, I also yeah. loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to think about ways that scientists have like written other aspects of their lives, um, I found that really interesting. Yeah, that's I, that, I, I like that genre a lot, and I mm-hmm. like some of those books too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've heard you say that you always knew that you're, you always wanted to be a writer from a pretty young age. How did you know? Um, well, I just read so much when I was young. Um, I never really had like a wild imagination, but I had a like very strong imagination where I was always kind of, um, thinking about my life, but in different, different scenarios, like with just different, um, with different factors involved. And I think, um, trying to kind of narrate those, those thought processes, um, very early on felt like a a work of, of, imagination or work of kind of um fictive writing a fictive thinking at least um so I, I've told this story before but the first story I ever wrote I wrote for the Reading Rainbow Young Writers and Illustrators competition um and I wrote it when I was seven um and I think that was for me just like the first time I felt like there was a world um where fiction was really valued and important and I wanted to do that thing Okay, this is another very important but basically not important question. It's important to me and probably no one else. But I need to know what is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, I would say separate. Ooh, same. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a really hard one. Yeah, weirdly, weirdly hard. Because it's like, is it an A or an E or, you know, like where, what's going on here with exactly. the vowel situation? Exactly. <laughs> I can't spell any words. Every time someone says a word, I'm always like, oh yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> I think I should start a list of all the words that other people can spell that I also can't spell. <laughs> uh, do you know what comes next for you? Do you know if, is there a book three in the works or four or five or? Um, not like actively in the works, but in the phase of being in the works where I'm just kind of thinking a lot about what I might want to do um Mm. which I suppose like in hindsight always feels like a kind of work but while I'm in the middle of it feels very um just like fraught and um I like always wish that I'm further along in my in my writing process than I am um so I have I have like the seed of an idea and I'm trying to figure out how to materialize it. Are you the type of writer that can write multiple things at once or do you need to be working on one project at a time? Um, I can only do one thing at a time. I wish that I could do multiple things at once. I think that would be so helpful um, and not having like the lag time between between books. But no, just one one thing at a time. That's fair. I'm, I'm, I think, think I align with that. Um, do you, for people who love Transcendent Kingdom, what are some books that you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with or just f- have a similar feeling or vibe or whatever that means to you? 
Sure. I don't know if you're going to be able to hear this on the recording, but my dog is coughing in the background, so you you might have to work with that. Um, But uh, books that I think that Transcendent Kingdom is in conversation with or that I think people would enjoy, um, uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, um, also Go Tell It on the Mountain by Mm. James Baldwin. Um, I think Mm. those those are two books that deal with religion. Um, and kind of religion's relationship to uh, just a, a person's lived experience that I find really, really beautiful and that helped me work on this book. Um, and mm. then I would also say those creative nonfiction books that I mentioned earlier, like On Immunity, I thought was really interesting and, and layered in a way that I wanted Transcendent Kingdom to be layered. Um, mm. so, so there's something about structure happening in that book that, that I wanted to draw from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, we have to talk about the cover of your book because it's so gorgeous. I'm curious, did you have anything to do with it? Did you have absolutely nothing to do with it besides saying like, yeah, that's nice. Cause I know for certain authors, it runs the gamut. And I know some authors hate talking about their cover because they're like, that's the thing I have nothing to do with. But the cover <laughs> of Transcendent Kingdom is so gorgeous. I remember when Knopf like posted it on social media and I was like, oh my God. So I'm just <laughs> curious your relationship to your cover. I had that same reaction. It's the first cover that I saw. I had nothing to do with it. It just, um, it just, they actually sent me like the, a physical like mock-up of it, I think because they were so excited about it. So they had put it on a different book and sent it to my house and I saw it and opened it and it felt like, oh, this is the book. Like it just felt so right, right away. Um, and I just love the kind of the minimalism of it. It's just, it's gorgeous. Um, designed it's so by cool. Kelly Blair and it's, it, yeah, it's just beautiful. It really is. And what about the title of the book? Was it always Transcendent Kingdom or did you have other titles you worked with? It was always Transcendent Kingdom, which is interesting because I'm, I'm like usually kind of a, um, a finicky titler where I'll have a title and change it and then, um, change it again and change it again. Um, homegoing is a title that, that happened kind of last minute happened, um, when I started working with my agent. Um, but Transcendent Kingdom, I had that title from, from the start. Um, I wasn't sure if it was going to stick, so I didn't share it with people. Um, Mm. but, but it ended up being, it ended up feeling right. Yeah, I, it is, it, to me, it feels like the exact right title also. So I I kind of, I'm glad to hear that because, I, I, it just, it, it has all the vibes of the book to me. Like when you see, I, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I do proudly because I think that that is part of the book. You know, like that's part of the experience of a reader. If you're reading a physical copy or even if you're on an e-reader, like that's the first thing you see. Yeah. And I, I love when a book feels when it, what's inside feels like what's on the outside. It just is such a gratifying experience. And I think that the title and the cover really package what you've created beautifully and they really all work together. And I, I appreciate that. I know some people who write great books and have shitty covers or whatever, don't appreciate people judging their <laughs> book by a cover, but if you've got a really nice package, like yeah. good on you. Yeah, um. <laughs> totally. I agree. It's, um, I've, I've been really fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. What about the most surprising reaction to Transcending Kingdom? Hmm. The most surprising reaction. You know, I don't know. It's it, the, it, the reactions have been so varied, which I think kind of speaks to the fact that this book covers such 
a wide array of things. Like it's been really um, fascinating to me to see what people pick up on. Like there are so many people Mm. who are like, this is my story because they have family members who have, you know, gone through addiction or, or because they are in the sciences or because they Mm. grew up religious. Like, I just feel like it's um, perhaps the most surprising thing is how, um, how like wide the array of reactions has been um, where it's felt like very specific and personal to such a broad range of people for such a broad um broad number of reasons uh that um i've i found that both surprising and really gratifying yeah i bet that's nice who is the coolest in your eyes so i'll let you define coolest person who's expressed excitement about transcendent kingdom <laughs> I got like a very sweet email from Zadie Smith when she read it. So that was, that was probably, she's probably the coolest person. Um, and that was that a is very reaction. cool. <laughs> yeah. That is like very, very cool. Okay. <laughs> this is my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read Transcendent Kingdom, who would it be? Mm. You know, I don't know if I could name a specific person. I'd be really, really interested to hear what like a super charismatic evangelical Christian in Ghana felt about the book. Mm. Like what a what a pastor of like a mega church in, in Kumasi feels about the book. I'd, I'd be curious <laughs> to see that. <laughs> I love that. Like a, a, a general fictitious person, but a super specific one, like a <laughs> hypothetical. I love that. Well, maybe one will and you'll get to hear from them. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful answers and your beautiful book. Um, for folks who haven't read Transcendent Kingdom yet, it's out in the world. You can get it. I listened to some of it. Your audiobook reader was fantastic. I don't know if you've listened to any of it, but she does so many incredible voices. It, it's like some of the voices I was like, is this the same person? It's really well done. Um, oh, that's and- great. She's like she's yeah. the queen of audiobooks, so I'm I'm so glad. Um, I'm yeah, so glad. she was yeah. great. I rarely listen to fiction on audio. It's mm-hmm. just not something. It's hard for me to focus on it. But she was so captivating. I just it was really great. Um, but yes, people, Transcendent Kingdom is out in the world. If you are one of the seven people who has not read Yah's first book, <laughs> Homegoing, it is also in the world and it's also fantastic. Yah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Tracy. This was wonderful. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you to Yad Jesse for being our guest. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Emily Murphy for setting up this interview. Don't forget, our book club pick for November is The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America by Marcus J. Moore. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 25th with Cole Kushner. Head to thestackspack.com to check out our brand new merch. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the show, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sebastian Alcala. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.